Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, professor of strategy at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, and I'm joined again by Dr. John Michaelshek, professor of theory and history at JAWS. Today we have with us uh, as our guest, Alan Kohler, who uh, is recently retired from the FBI, where he was the assistant director uh, of the counterintelligence division at the FBI. And we had the honor of hearing his views on threats to the United States today. And Alan, I'll just jump right in with you. Uh, you did a great job of covering the threats to the United States from China and Russia in particular. Could you expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. Thanks, John. John, thanks for having me here. Uh, it was an honor speaking with the class today. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so my perspective on this comes from having been an FBI agent for 27 years, working counterintelligence my whole career, and the last three as the assistant director for CI. So my entire job was countering nation-state threats, and far and away, Russia and China were their biggest two threats, probably taking up about 75% of our, of our resources. So, yeah, I see Russia as a regional threat and sort of a global nuisance. They're still very aggressive in their espionage activities against the United States. Everyone knows about their foreign influence activities, particularly uh, as it circled around the elections. Um, a lot of our work right now, a lot of the FBI's work, as I'm retired, I keep saying we, uh, but a lot of the FBI's work is centered around counting their, their procurement efforts to restaff their military. On the China side... China has a, a very ex exhaustive plan to become the world's only superpower by mid-century. And they have a plan that uh, in, entail, entails them collecting significant amounts of critical technologies from inside the U.S. and other countries. They have a plan, a concept that allows them to merge the information collected by the civilian world with their military, so everything essentially becomes dual use. And they have a, a, a repressive uh, 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 regime that seeks to quell dissent both inside and outside their borders. Um, China is a holistic threat using all instrumentalities of power, um, and the FBI is actively trying to stop that. So Russia, a regional threat, sort of a dying uh, power, but equipped with with nuclear weapons, so you know uh, a significant threat to the United States uh, uh, still at this day. But China is the emerging uh, power. John, you talk a lot about China in, in your classes. Jump in. So China, <laughs> you mentioned China is the biggest threat, and then the Russians second, and we'll go back to the Russians again. But how effective are the Chinese at what they do? Uh, you know, so I view China is getting more effective. I think if we looked at them maybe 10 years ago, we would have viewed them as the sort of second class uh, junior varsity team as compared to the professionalism of, of say, like the SVR, or the KGB. Uh, China's getting much, much better now in terms of their tradecraft their, and their ability. And what China is really good at is planning. They're, they have a plan for success and they have the resources to execute on that success and collect and do things around the world that really only the United States has a capability of doing. And what makes them apart, sets them apart from Russia is that once they collect information, they have the infrastructure and industry and economy that can then actually utilize that and exploit it to their advantage. All right, so the follow-up to that is the you've 27 years. Yep. Long time. So in your career, Russia real quick, have you seen it improve 
or has it worsened in your 27-year career? The relationship with Russia? Not the relationship, but how the intel gather. Well, that's a good question. So uh, I think in part of my talk today, I mentioned how, you know, when I first got in the FBI, a lot of our focus was on following intelligence officers who were living inside embassies in D.C., for example. Um, cyber wasn't a thing then. You know, the, the idea of, of, of impacting a, an election through the Internet and at scale wasn't, wasn't a thing. They always had active measures. But Russia has been adept at using technology for its intelligence operations in a way that's made them very effect, effective. And they've been able to essentially um, keep up with the decline in other areas of their, of their um, economy and their, and their society through incorporating technology into what their intel work. So it seems like China is much more deeply embedded in in the United States than than Russia. And right. I've always been uh, lamenting the fact that we have Chinese students studying aeronautical engineering at MIT and Chinese nationals teaching in universities and working at at labs and and advanced technology locations all across the United States. It seems like they have really put their foot on the gas over the last two decades uh, doing those things where the Russians still seem a little bit more at arm's distance. Uh, that's, that's true. It has, has, a, has something to do with scale. You know, I mean, China's just so much bigger than Russia. But again, it goes back to China's plan to turn itself from the world's factory into an innovative economy, right? And so they have sent hundreds of thousands of students to the U.S. to study you know, aeronautics and other things those students necessarily aren't the issue. Like we're not, we're, we're not, the concern is not a Chinese student or a Chinese professor. The concern is the Chinese Communist Party and the incentivized plans that they produce that incentivize bad behavior on behalf of some students, some scientists, and people who work in the private sector. It is not the actual, you know, we're a wonderful melting pot. We're all, none of us probably came from the U.S., we, we, we want to have uh, differences of opinion and diverse thought. But China is aggressively going after the things that we have and the things that we cherish the most. And in some cases, they do that through incentivizing people to do bad things. You know, one of my concerns uh, just in recent weeks is we're reading about this downturn in the Chinese economy, yeah. uh, that they're facing a, a crisis like the United States did in 2008. Uh, where they've overinvested in in the real estate market in in particular, and I actually read yesterday in the New York Times that that the Chinese are facing uh, deflation, which is about the worst thing that an economy can can go through. And you know, I can take a certain joy in watching the Chinese struggle, but I worry as a military strategist that you know the reaction of states when they get into trouble like that, totalitarian states, as they potentially can lash out. Right. Uh, do you share those concerns? I do have those concerns. And we talked about this a little bit in the, in the remarks to the class today that they can be unpredictable, but in, in what I would look for is that whatever their action is going to be is going to be directed towards an internal audience. So if, if internally they feel as they'll need, they need to show power, if internally they need to feel as they need to show their people that they're in control and that our economy is driving in the right direction, that's the step that China is going to take, um, and it's it's not something necessarily it's easily predicted. You know, some of our our students 
as they study uh, under John's uh, half-baked tutelage, uh, they look at at China and and Sun Tzu's philosophy and Eastern philosophy, and they they come to believe that we are at war with China now from the Chinese perspective, but we don't we're we don't realize it uh, hmm. because of our our society. But they are shaping <clears throat> us, and and the apex of Chinese military strategy is to defeat the opponent without fighting. Uh, do you see that influence, uh, especially in the Pacific now? Oh, I certainly do. Yeah, and I think it, it goes to what you know the great power competition is. Actually, it's, it's it's about beating your opponent or beating your adversary without needing to go kinetic and using a traditional military to do so. China absolutely has a plan to be the only superpower by mid-century, and they're doing that to our detriment, to the United States' detriment and the detriment of others in the world. Um, they, they, I'm convinced, and I, I work at a company called Premier Consulting, and, and a lot of the smart people we have are convinced that China is going to going to take over Taiwan without firing a shot, and they have they have the ability to influence populations. They have the ability to infiltrate, infiltrate political parties, and it'll take a generation to do, but they'll get that island back if they want to, and they don't necessarily need to do it in a kinetic fashion. Yeah, I think our biggest concern, uh, you know, from a political science realm, looking at Xi is that he wants to get this done as his legacy. Yes. You know, and so I, on one side, I agree with you that the typical Eastern way of, of thinking would be we wake up one day and we, we realize that Taiwan has come under the direct influence or agreed to, to cede their, their current position and, and rejoin China. Um, but again, I worry that, that in the, the current PRC set up with the regime, he will have a, a relatively short window, maybe the next three to five years to execute. Yeah, I, I know Xi is, is very um, ambitious in that regard, but maybe a question I would ask you guys is, with China watching how the world has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right, and how Russia's been ostracized, right, and the struggles with the Chinese economy, I mean, number one, I guess, do you think the world would respond the same way to China? And then is that a good thing for us and for China if that happens? Well, I, you know, there's some differences, and we talk about this uh, really every day yeah. here and, and the lessons that Beijing may have taken from, from the war in Ukraine. You know, some of the levers, though, that we have, because we're so economically tied to China, I, I don't think are as available, and the Chinese economy is so massive compared to the Russian economy. Again, I see Russia as, as a dying state, which is dangerous because it's wounded and dying, but mm -hmm. possesses 1,500 nuclear weapons, where right. China is a rising power. We'd have to use different instruments of power to influence uh, China. John, what do you think? Yeah, so I think with the Ukraine-Russia-China scenario, uh, what we've talked about in our class, some of the things the nations have done to take money away from Russia, all these, all these activities, I think it's hard to do with China. Yeah. We're just too globally linked. Um, now, going back to your, you referred to it in your talk, you just mentioned it here, China has a plan. Now, as you as an <clears throat> intelligence professional, how do you balance that plan that you read that they publish? Is that, should that be taken literally or is that aspirational or a mix of both? 
uh, she's talking about like the Made in China 2025 yeah. plans and others. Oh, those are actually little plans that we need to take seriously because they are they are the plans that are prioritizing the actions that the Chinese government is taking, the, the, the programs they're sponsoring, the direction and control of the intelligence services and the military are all to support the plans that they've orchestrated. Very helpfully, the Chinese have put that out uh, for us. But conversely, and we talked about this before, that plan is not just for the Chinese government. The plan is for all of the Chinese society. So everybody inside China, everybody in the world now knows what China prioritizes, and they all set out to satisfy those goals. So it's not just us having to counter the, the PLA or the MSS, for example. It's many, many other different vectors coming at us. Well, that's my biggest concern is, you know, the Chinese have a whole of government approach, really whole of society. Everybody's in this effort. They're proud of how they've come out of this century of shame and they're, they're working towards this uh, renewed position on the world stage. But in the West, you know, at, at our best, we're just kind of muddling through. Mm-hmm. And and we may have you know strategies, uh, some some of which are enduring, that that go beyond different administrations. Yeah. But but mostly we're knee jerk reactions, and certainly not very unified right now in our our long term long term outlook. Yeah. So the question of is the U.S. at war with PRC? Is this a Cold War? Is this something <laughs> akin to the 1950s? I, I don't think so because we were never our economy was never inextricably linked with the Soviet economy like we are with China. You know, if the, if if we banned Chinese products or people, we we just couldn't survive. Um, so we are in a maybe a, a diplomatic Cold War where we're tr- where we're sort of sanctioning each other back and forth. But I don't see us ever getting to the point where we cut off diplomatic relations with China. It's just they're just too strategically important for us. Again, I'm, you know, I'm the FBI guy, so there's other people that make those decisions. Yeah, no, so that's good. Another separate thing. This has been in the news a lot. I have two 14 year olds, two teenagers. <laughs> okay. TikTok. Yeah. Any comments on that? Because I have my kid. The two kids are allowed. They have TikTok. <clears throat> though I think I polled the students last week, and I think none of them have it on their devices or their kids. So mm-hmm. let me interject. You know, John yeah. is blaming this on his kids, yes. but I think he gets most of his news from TikTok. No, Twitter, <laughs> but or whatever it's called now. But yeah, no, no TikTok account for me. I think half the way I communicate with my children is through videos, so I totally understand. So I, I would say like this, the problem is not necessarily TikTok itself, right? It's the, it's the laws and the policies that the Chinese Communist Party has put in place that TikTok and its parent company is beholden to. Okay, so TikTok, through the normal use of its app, just like every other app on our phone, collects a voluminous amount of information about us, about our interests, potentially about our locations. Um, That, because of the Chinese data laws and the Chinese national security laws and the counterespionage laws, that information, TikTok, is compelled to give to the Chinese government if requested. Um, You don't have an equivalent to that inside the United States without due process going through a court. And that is the risk that certain Chinese companies, particularly the state-owned enterprises, but really any Chinese company that houses its data over in China, is it is all subject to uh, requests by the Chinese government really just upon their will. So you have the same issue with Huawei. that We talked about this uh, a couple of years ago with Huawei. It was a big talk, a big thing. TikTok is, is the most recent thing, and there are many others that the, you know, the USIC is concerned about. 
Yeah, right. so I hope we can maintain TikTok because John likes to practice practice all of his <laughs> his dance uh, moves off of uh, the TikTok videos. Well, so the, do your children, do your kids have TikTok now? I personally don't, but my children do. Yeah, and you're okay with that. See, so then I am okay like, with that. Yeah, can't delete it yet. I'm not okay with it, but it's it's like I think it's like fighting the tide. It, it's very hard, and, and I, I hate to say that as a former FBI professional, but the reality is. It's what kids do nowadays, and you know maybe if my son or daughter got a job in the USIC, they'd be forced to drop it off their phones. But for right now, as a twenty-year-old, they're doing it. So, Alan, I know you got to drive back up to uh, to Washington. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up here. Do you have any words of wisdom for the students of the Joint Advanced Warfighting School? I think I think I'll just end it like I ended the session before that. You know, my I. I come from a family of service. My grandfather was in World War II. My dad was in the Navy. My uncle was in the Army. I served in the FBI for 27 years. And I just really appreciate the sacrifices the students are making here uh, in their jobs. And I know they're all going off to tough jobs after this. And they're going to make tough decisions for their families and for the people that work for them. And, and I really respect what they're doing. I respect what you guys are doing in terms of teaching them uh, and teaching the people who are going to keep our country safe for the future. So it was an honor to be here, and I appreciate talking to you guys, and and it was great to talk to the class. Well, it's been great having you, and I want to thank you for your 27 years of service uh, as well. Certainly the FBI is an organization that's under a little pressure uh, politically these days, but it's great to talk to to agents, uh, folks who are really on the ground uh, doing the hard work all these years. So so thank you very much. With that, John, any last words? Remember, be elite. Read your Clausewitz. See you next time. That's it from here. Thank you.